Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. If you've read Hilary Mantel's Wolf Hall, or perhaps some of the work of my guest today, you'll have seen the Tudor Court through the eyes of Thomas Cromwell. At least, you'll have seen a fictionalised version of it, albeit one rooted in the sources. But who was the real Thomas Cromwell, sometime secretary and vicegerent to King Henry VIII? Where did Cromwell come from? What do we know of the shadowy 15-odd years of his early manhood? Was he really Wolsey's servant above all else? And how did one who seemed to shun promotion and advancement rise vertiginously to the highest position in the land? And why did he fall from that precarious height so swiftly and fatally? Caroline Angus, my guest today, will tell us all. Caroline lives in New Zealand, studied history at the Universitat de Valencia in Spain and at King's College London. For the last decade, she has written historical fiction about the Spanish Civil War and the world of Thomas Cromwell. But in the end, her great knowledge of Cromwell's surviving papers, which she has also edited for publication under the title My Hearty Commendations, led her to write The Private Life of Thomas Cromwell, her first non-fiction book, which was published in August 2022. Caroline, thank you so much for joining me. I'm really excited to talk to you about your book. And I suppose the first question to ask you is why you wrote it. Because, of course, we've had a number of biographies of Cromwell in recent years. Hilary Mantel has inspired lots of people. And I wonder, what did you hope to add with yours? Which, by the way, is a beautifully written and fascinating book. Well, when in 2020, I decided to do a recording of all the letters that Cromwell left behind. And I found increasingly you can find Cromwell not in what he wrote, but what he's missing from. As I went through his letters more and more, it seemed that he had very special friendships with a large group of people. And they were the most important things in his life. And his friendships and who he valued really hadn't been known so much. It hadn't really been touched on. It was more about what he could gain out of doing things. But he actually had really strong relationships with people. Yes, that comes out really clearly. I didn't know before 
I read your book about the way that Cromwell kept faith with the connections of his youth and later life. And at one point you call his life a tale of loyalty and family. Do you think this sort of sense of both loyalty to his friends and actually quite often kind of dogged, unbending disdain towards his enemies is really at the heart of any understanding of him? It really is because he always really cared about the people who were in his life And even some of the times they weren't always doing good things. Cromwell was not doing good things, but he still believed in them. And he was always prepared to give people a second chance. And when things got tough, he always wanted to go back to the people he knew before he entered the royal court and before he knew any nobles. And it just shows how important it was to him. You mentioned some of his letters survive. My impression has always been that not many do because of, as Dermot McCulloch has famously said, that sort of destruction of his outray. How do you set about writing the private life of a man whose interiority is so often hidden from a historian's view? It was really tricky. It was more about finding other people's letters rather than his. When I set out to write his letters, I thought, oh, it'll be easy. There's not many. But by the time I put lots of little bits together, there's about 500 pieces that you can look at and the same names always crop up. But the letters to him, there's just so many. I wanted to collect them as well, but it's impossible. There's so many. And it's the same few people and they mention each other. They name each other's friendships or where they've been. And you can just sort of put it together as a puzzle to find that what he's been up to. And the few surviving financial records of his really gave a really good insight, especially towards the end of his life. You could see what was really important to him, who was around in the household at the time, and you could just sort of put it together like a puzzle rather than having any clear guide. And it was just really interesting to sort of follow the patterns. And I suppose we have his to-do lists, for want of a better expression, his remembrances as well. Were they useful? I love reading his remembrances because quite often he would have a clerk would be writing it down for him and he'd take it from them and then you could see his hand was putting other things and he would mark his priority lists for the day and what mattered to him. So it sort of gave you an insight into what was important to him and just how he worked day to day. So let's go back to the beginning. You do a fabulous job of recreating the world of his childhood, the smells, the sleeping on straw mattresses, that sort of thing. Tell us what we truly know of his parentage in early years. It's all a lot of theories. You haven't got any records, of course, because he was the one that made the rule. You have to have births, deaths and marriages listed. So prior to that, it's a case of looking at a few little things, who had a lease on a property at the time, or his father went into the courts quite a few times and just checking names and things from there. It's not guesswork. It's a little bit more complicated than guesswork, but it's just sort of following who's around at the time because, I mean, Putney wasn't a big place, and so names did pop up from that area. You could really sort of put it all together bit by bit. But, yeah, it is hard to figure out. His family, it's not very big. You can imagine, you know, sometimes really big families, but it was only him and his two sisters and his parents only had a few siblings as well. So there wasn't a really big path to be able to follow, which in hindsight actually makes it a bit easier. And tell us who his parents were, because a few people listening know the intimacies of Cromwell's life as much as you do. So fill us in on these details. Well, Walter was his father. Walter Cromwell's known famously with Hilary Mantel. He's the big, abusive, horrible man that Thomas has to overcome, which doesn't really have a lot of basis in fact. 
that's sort of something made up for drama. His mother, we don't actually know her name, but it is assumed to be Catherine because that was the name of their eldest daughter. They both largely come from obscurity. They're just people of their time. And they had moved to Putney to get land in Wandsworth to just try and do some farming because sheep farming was primarily all they could do at that time. It seems that Moore Walter's brother was running an alehouse on the edge of Thames and the whole family lived there together because they were servicing Mortlake Manor for the Archbishop of Canterbury just down the river. And Walter gets in trouble with the law quite a few times, doesn't he? He does, but it's not big crimes. He does have one assault that's on record. That was for his brother-in-law's brother. They got into some sort of argument. But apart from that, it's really minor things to do with their alehouse and that, you know, you're watering down your ale. But at that time, it wasn't a really serious crime. It was just pay a fine, you know, you've done something wrong. It wasn't as if they were intentionally trying to do anything wrong. The regulations were changing constantly over a sort of a 20 to 30 year period as they tried to regulate the sale of ale throughout England. And they just sort of fell foul of, you know, it's a bit like accidentally parking in the wrong place. You're in to pay your fine. It's not a crime as such. So it makes him look worse than he really was. But, I mean, he was picked to be on juries and work as a constable in the town. So, obviously, he wasn't doing these great big crimes, otherwise they wouldn't select him. And Cromwell went off on his travels, which is to say that he sort of fades from view at about the age of 15. And we have, I think, only one source to suggest where he may have gone and what he may have done. And it says that Cromwell spent time in Florence. You indicate that you think he maybe came under the influence of Machiavelli and you also think this time was pivotal for him. In a memorable line, you say, Thomas Cromwell was born in Putney, but his mind was entirely Florentine. What do you think this time in Italy taught him? I think that's where he first learned about loyalty and about the friendships and making those relationships with people. Now, it's a real formative period of anyone's life. You're traveling, you're meeting new people, you're getting work experience, and the same we do today. And he was essentially off doing that same thing. We know that he worked with the Frescobaldi family because he kept that relationship up right throughout his life. And, you know, it was sort of a young period where he was able to try things. You know, he left Putney without education, without any financial backing. But by the time he returned to England, he'd obviously learned a lot about law, a lot about banking. He'd learned multiple languages. What he did there, he just sort of grabbed hold of everything he could because he seemed to take on information really easily and retain that, which is sort of, I guess, his superpower. He was able to converse with a lot of people and he didn't mind if it was the bankers or if he was just talking with the servants. He didn't mind either way because he came from the bottom. So he didn't have any prejudice. So he just sort of went out into the world and was able to grab hold of anything that came along. You report that he later said to Cramer that in these years he was wild and youthful without sense or regard of God and his word. I suppose that could just show a sort of middle-aged remorse or regret but do you think it tells us truthfully something about Cromwell when he was young? I sort of find through his papers when he was younger God didn't matter he didn't seem to regard religion at all it never seems to crop up in his conversations or within his family any of his work I quite like that quote it's written by John Fox from Cramner's works 
But I mean, he was in his 30s when he's talking about his period in his life. So his youthful, wild period was really, really long. Religion sort of came to him much later in life than it did for most. It was only really when he went to Rome to meet with the Pope that it had a really stark influence on him. And he didn't seem to like what he saw. And I think that's when he saw an opportunity that maybe the world could be different. His worldview could be different. Yeah, I don't think he did care about religion too much in the beginning. Some have even argued he never cared about it through his entire life, which I don't feel personally. But yeah, definitely through more than sort of two thirds of his life, he just didn't care at all. He was just out there doing what he had to to survive, which is probably the case for a lot of people in that time period. Let's come back to his faith, because I think that's a really important question, and it sort of arises again and again in the tale of Cromwell's life. But if we take him back to London (laughs) after his time abroad, he seems to have remained somewhat of an outsider at first, but nevertheless gained a position in Parliament through his patron, Thomas Gray, Marquess of Dorset. And as you note, in 1523, he delivered that blistering if reason speech to the king in front of the king, denouncing Henry VIII's policy of invading France, you know, calling Terroir de Tournay ungracious dog holes. Now, this surely took great courage or great foolhardiness. What do you make of it? It was incredibly brave to have stood up there. It's almost as if he thought, this is my last chance. This is all I've got. I'm just going to lay it out because that's not even what he went into Parliament to say. He was only in there for a minor petition on behalf of Thomas Gray, and that never even got read out. And instead, he's got this whole big speech of, I love you, you're my king and you're perfect, but also you're very wrong and I'm going to lay out all these reasons. And I don't think he minded that he was an outsider. He never seemed to have any interest in getting in with anybody. He was just sort of always on the edge of everybody, and he was quite comfortable with that. So when he gave that speech in 1523, it was really sort of out of character for him. And there is a few moments in his life where he has really stood up. And when he has to, he'll fight and he'll argue for whatever he needs. But it was never sort of an interest. He doesn't do these things to get attention. He just laid it out clearly. We can't go to war in France. It was because it was bad for trade. But you're not going to say that. I can't make a profit in my own time. But it was very unusual for him to do that because he wasn't interested in getting any attention. Tell me a bit about his domestic life. He had his wife, only one, which I guess is unusual for the time period, with Elizabeth. She had been married to another guy who also worked for Henry VII. She was a widow when they got married, roughly around 1514 to 1515. There's no record of it. And then they had Gregory in approximately 1520. And then they had Anne a few years later. And I think Grace was born probably quite late, around 1527. And there's no record of any other children, so it's really hard to tell. But they seemed really, really happy. I don't think it was a love match, but they were happy. And Mercy Pryor was Elizabeth's mother. She always lived with them, whether they lived in Fenchurch Street or when they moved to Austin Friars in 1523. They were really close. They were a really close family. And then Elizabeth, she had a sister 
Joan Williamson and her and her husband and their daughter, they all moved in with the Cromwell family as well. And Cromwell also took on his sister Elizabeth's children and also his elder sister Catherine. She died in about 1517 and he took on their children as well because they were just all really close and he held them really close. He took them all really seriously and they were always together as a really big family. Again, loyalty coming through there. Now, we know that he entered the service of Cardinal Thomas Wolsey. And of course, this is something that people will be familiar with again from Mantel. It's portrayed as kind of crucial to his character in the Wolf Hall series. And one of his tasks for Wolsey was to close down underperforming monasteries. I guess immediately this is taking us back to this question of faith. This is business, but what do we know of Cromwell's own faith by this point? He started working with Wolsey around January 1524. He starts to appear a lot in Wolsey's paperwork. By 1525, they were well into the reformation of the monasteries. It was all Wolsey's plan to either close them down or amalgamate different areas together just to get the profit up, to get the buildings working, to get the land working. You know, they were really decimated by that period. Henry VIII gave them no funding of any kind. So he was doing that, but I don't feel as if it was really important to him to reform the Catholic Church or anything at that stage. And I don't think Wolsey particularly cared either. It was definitely a business deal because Cromwell would go into these places and some places did fight their closures from right at the very beginning. But then sometimes they really needed to be manhandled out of there. So Cromwell had to get bodyguards in to get people out of monasteries because they wouldn't leave. But no one personally disliked Thomas Cromwell. He would go in there and close a monastery and then they'd be sending gifts to his house because they'd become friends. You know, never mind you closed down my monastery. It was really much a business transaction and he seemed to just sort of trot around the country making friends and, you know, sending letters and being happy. It wasn't really about religion at all. It was only around 1526 when he met Thomas Cramner that they started to really discuss the Reformation because it was well in hand within Europe by that stage. And a lot of people were coming in or they were being exiled based on their religion and they were getting together in private groups. And it was only really then that he sort of felt like he'd had a place Because after he came back from Rome, obviously he wasn't happy with the whole Catholic situation that he'd been dealing with, with the indulgences he'd been sent there initially to find and to ratify. But it was only around 1526 that he thought, you could do more with the reformation of these little monasteries. What can we do with the land? What can we do with the people? And how we can help rather than simply shut everything down? In the end, then, do you think that he was pragmatic rather than evangelical? Well, most of the time he was very practical about it. You know, he can be portrayed as so strong as an evangelical. And sometimes he was. He was trying to reform the church. I think it didn't matter to him. But for most of the period when he was shutting monasteries, prior to 1535, when Cromwell was closing monasteries, it was definitely a business transaction. He was quite happy to just close down little things. There was only one or two monks in a monastery. You close it down, you move them on. It was only later on that Henry VIII really wanted to take his plan and really run with it and make a huge profit, which he was not happy with at that time. Prior to 1535, it was definitely just being a practical situation. He wasn't 
doing it for religious reasons at all. Such an interesting contrast here, isn't there, though, between his reputation as this great reformer and then a line that you report him saying that he would that Luther had never been born. But I guess we'll get more into this as we go on. If we rush forward a few years, I found it fascinating how you identify something through a gap in the evidence, Thomas Cromwell missing in action, as you put it, when you're looking at the impact of his grief at the death of his wife. How did you go about putting that together? That was tricky in that it stood out for me right from the very beginning, just looking through his correspondence. When he was building Ipswich College, he was really, really busy and he was spending a lot of time away from home. So there was a lot of correspondence going back and forward between everybody. And all of a sudden it just stopped. It made no sense. Everyone had been together. The monasteries were closing as scheduled he had met with everyone he needed to, and then suddenly he just disappeared. And then a letter will turn up that was addressed to his house, and it said, oh, you haven't made this payment. What happened? Are you all right? Oh, and then another one, I heard you were sick. Are you all right? Are you on leave? Are you all right? Because he never let people down. You know, if you sent him a letter, he sent another letter back, and then suddenly he disappeared. And it was just going through that period and then you start to see letters, oh, I'm sorry to hear about Elizabeth or I wish I could come home and help you. I've heard what's happened. That was the only way to really put together what was going on. And it was only when Stephen Gardner went looking for him and said, you know, Wolsey's wondering where you are. What's going on? You know, it's been months. And he says, oh, you know, things have got really bad. And he lists all the things that he hasn't been able to cope with. And it was there. That's where you can see where something catastrophic has happened in his life because it was just so out of character for him at that time. And in the end, it's not just one bereavement, is it? No, because he lost both of his daughters. Even in my own fiction, I write it as, you know, they all died at the same time. But it seems that they really didn't. There was a horrible gap. You know, their daughter Grace was very young when she lost her mother. She must have been maybe a year old. And then he's tried to cope with that. He's got his mother-in-law and his sister-in-law to help him with the children so he can get back to work a few months after Elizabeth dies. But he was devastated. Even the way he would snap at his friends in his letters, he wasn't coping. He started calling in his debts. He wrote his will, which he listed out everything for his children. They had done an inventory of their home the year before Elizabeth died, you know, everything was sort of in place. It's like he was anticipating the worst. And then again, this gap appears. He was meant to go away and see Gregory for the summer holiday, as he always did. And then suddenly he disappears and he's not away with Gregory. And you can see that this must have been when the girls have disappeared. And it's right at the same time that Wolsey fell out with Henry VIII. Wolsey was desperately needing help. And everyone else was in a panic. And then suddenly Cromwell just completely lost it. And that's when he was found crying at Asher Place with Wolsey. It was too much. He'd lost his daughters. Um, his career was going down the toilet. He just panicked. And you can see in this little gap, it must have been where it happened. He's lost them both in a really, really short period, probably within the same month or even from the same illness. Yeah, you can just see the life of a man just unravelling bit by bit by bit without him actually saying that. There's no proof of it. He thought it was at an end. He just seemed to have nothing to live for anymore. 
I guess it's the documentary equivalent of a fossil. You can see what's not there, perhaps. So this is about the time that he is starting to come to the attention of the king. And one thing that was striking to me is the surprising, almost paradoxical rise of Thomas Cromwell. He's someone who never seems to have sought promotion or advancement, and yet he made astonishing amounts of money and he rose to the highest position in the land. (laughs) How do you explain it? Cromwell had once been discussed by the king prior to Wolsey's fall. Wolsey had to go away to Rome over the annulment issue. And while he was away, they said, don't send Thomas Cromwell to the king. Don't send John Allen to the king because he hates these men for what they have done to the monasteries, which I thought was strange because Henry VIII knew exactly what was going on. He had Wolsey doing all these things with his full blessing. So to hear that, you know, he wasn't pleased, I think was a little bit of rubbish or a little bit of, you know, saving face from Henry. I mean, Cromwell had no interest in getting the king's attention because by the time that Wolsey was in serious trouble, Thomas Cromwell was already a wealthy man. He had lent out millions of pounds, you know, in today's equivalent to people. He was very well off. He had a beautiful home. He didn't need to be noble. He could see that you could make money around the edges of these people as their lawyer and sort of squirrel it away. He had no interest. And then it was only when Wolsey begged him constantly, please, can you go to court? Please, can you ask for this and this and this? It's like he went in there, asked his question, and they said, oh, well, what do you think about this or this or this? And he just laid it all out. Because, you know, it didn't matter if you displeased the king because he was going home anyway. He didn't care. And I think the loyalty he showed really shone. He spoke in Parliament for Wolsey as the only person who did, and the king was there. He was showing the one trait of loyalty that Henry was always so paranoid about. And I think he thought, this is a way of me helping Wolsey without losing face to the court. I'll go to this man. He was almost like he was trying to back out of what he'd done to Wolsey because he did drop all the charges. It was only the second lot of charges that really got him. And I think it was like a healing thing. He'd lost his Wolsey, but he was a replacement. Cromwell sort of had to take that position, really whether he wanted it or not, if the king asked you, what could you say? Yes, it seems that Henry might have been attracted by that potential for loyalty, hoping it would be towards himself, and that straight talking. Perhaps he was surrounded by people who would tell him what they thought he wanted to hear, and here's someone telling him what they actually think. But I suppose you've also alluded to Cromwell's charisma. People seem to have found him charming. What else would you say about his character? Charming, I think, overwhelmingly is the thing that stood out. I don't really know how he did it. I've never been able to figure it out, but people always liked him. I don't know if it was just the way he spoke. I can imagine it was probably quite honest. Henry was surrounded by yes men. Cromwell didn't need to be. And I think the other important thing was that he didn't have a series of people to back him up. He didn't have a support base. He was very much a person by himself. And I think because of that, he could be whoever he wanted to be. It didn't matter who was going to say what or what someone would think about something because he didn't have any alliances. He just had his family, his friends, his job as a lawyer. And you knew that speaking for someone else, it didn't matter. It was just him being himself. And I think that was probably quite refreshing 
compared to everyone else who always had to tiptoe because they always had to take so many people into consideration at the time. How much of a tyrant really was Julius Caesar? Would we have ever stood a chance against the first dinosaurs? And did Helen of Troy really have the power to launch a thousand ships? Well, you can expect all of this and more from the ancients on History Hit. Join us twice a week, every week, as we explore some of the greatest moments of our ancient past. Subscribe to The Ancients wherever you get your podcasts. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. So Wolsey fell, despite Cromwell's best efforts, bit by bit in royal service over the next couple of years. And I suppose he seems to have done so through constant hard work. Would you say there was anything else at play? It was definitely hard work. He was just sitting, toiling away. And I think one thing with that is he could take care of the king's business, however the king wanted, but he always thought ahead. He thought, you know, if I do this then this, 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 this will happen. He was always five steps ahead of in his own little plan. So if Henry said, oh, what if, he could pull that straight out of his pocket. And I think that's why it was always so helpful. The king could say, oh, but we can't enact this law because of this. And you'll say, well, look what I've written. The bill is here. I did it six months ago. And I think that was really helpful. He was really happy to take the load for Henry because Henry notoriously, would palm off as much work as he could. He really underestimated how much Wolsey was doing and he instantly wanted someone to fill that void, someone who wasn't going to complain. Cromwell was quite happy to take his paycheck, do the paperwork and not ask any questions. 
And uh, I think that just appealed because there was no real benefit for him. He didn't get titles. He didn't get land. He didn't get anything from Henry. It was just doing a job and he was quite happy to be quiet. Yeah, it's very striking. He's a councillor, but he's not getting any of the great titles until he gets Master of the Jewel House in 1532. But that point you've just made about him not getting titles, not getting land or any noble recognition is very noticeable. And yet, if the Holbein portrait of Thomas Cromwell, which is the only one we have, is to be believed, he was very proud of what he had achieved. What do you make of it? What do you read into it? I think it's a really lovely portrait. I know a lot of people say, you know, it's very basic or, you know, Holbein drew it almost like a caricature, like it was mean. But I think he didn't make it a big priority to look rich. It was like, I've been a merchant. I've been a lawyer. I've worked with fabrics. And he wanted to display that, the way he laid out the table in front of him, how he didn't want to be front and centre of the painting. He's not even looking It was very basic, but also it says a lot about him. He wasn't in focus. He wasn't in the middle of the picture. He only wanted a side-on portrait, which was very different to what Holbein was doing at the time. He's obviously requested that specifically. And I think it's really interesting because you show he had really beautiful handwriting. He used to get by by doing other people's mail for them. You know, when he's got a quill out, he's got a book out, he's got his lawyers, he's got his pair of scissors that he got, you know, and a symbol of the Merchant Adventurers Club that he was a member of. Now, it was all the things that he had done. They weren't noble, you know, they weren't high in titles. He was only just master of the jewel house by that stage. So there's a little piece of paper from his majesty to the master of the jewel house. For him, that was everything. He had made it. He had his friend Henry Wyatt had run the jewel house and he'd seen how successful and how much it could be improved. He thought he'd made it by that stage. Look at it. Look at everything I've got. Of course, not thinking ahead to how crazy things were going to be in the future. In these years, he seems to have had a friendship with Eustace Chapwee, who was the ambassador from the Holy Roman Empire. And again, I'm sorry to keep using Mantel's books as an anchor, but people will know them. That friendship is portrayed in detail there. I wonder whether you think that was something that was an authentic friendship or something that was merely professional. And I also want to ask you about what you think of Cromwell's sense of integrity. It's kind of a related point. But in these years, in talking to Chapuis, in his correspondence, as far as we can tell, he seems to have been supporting Catherine and Mary. We know that Catherine thought of him as her special friend. He's supporting them privately, but publicly he's destroying their lives. <laughs> so how do you square this? Yeah, it's really difficult because, I mean, Catherine is my favourite queen, without question. I love Catherine and Mary. Cromwell really cared for them. He really genuinely did. That's the impression I got. When he talked to Chapuis about them, he cared Chapuis would always be there. Can you talk to Henry on Catherine's behalf? And Cromwell did. He kept going back. And to talking to Henry about Catherine when he was already married to Anne, that kind of been fun. Just trying to send them little bits of money here and there, making sure that Catherine's got everything she needs. It would have been really difficult because, quite clearly, he destroyed the Catholic Church's power in England. He made sure that Anne could be queen. He set everything up so Cranmer could arrange the annulment between Henry and Catherine. He was there for these big, pivotal moments. He had to go and tell 
Princess Mary that she was no longer a princess. He had to tell her what to write to letters to the king. It was really hard, and he was right in the middle. It never seems that Catherine or Mary felt that Cromwell was an enemy. Mary would write quite informally to Cromwell right through the whole period before and after her mother died. She obviously felt that she could talk to him. Same with her servants felt that they could go to him if they had something that they needed. So it would have been really hard because he was making Anne Boleyn a queen, but he didn't like her. He still liked Catherine and Mary, who were Catholic, while he wanted to promote the Reformation. And it must have been really hard because how do you not be posed as a liar? You know, you're saying one thing, but you're doing another. In your private letters, you're saying, I'll help you. But then he's openly destroying them. It must have been incredibly difficult to try and balance that. But you had to do what Henry said. Ultimately, if he wanted Anne, then you make Anne. It didn't really matter what his personal feelings were. How do we know that he didn't like Anne Boleyn? I think it was the lack of correspondence with Anne is what sort of showed it initially. And when she did write to him, it was very to the point. It was very formal. She's asking for little things for other people because she tried to promote the people that she cared about as well. But it was very simple. It would only start to creep in. When Anne was at court, he wasn't at court. You know, it was just little things like that. And then it was Chapuis who picked up on that there was obviously some sort of problem that Anne clearly didn't like him. Obviously, he wasn't responding with any kind of friendship in return. It's interesting in that case, isn't it, inferring from absence of evidence, because we know that both Anne and Cromwell were destroyed, and with them, much of their correspondence was destroyed. And informal notes from Mary could be taken as a sign of friendship, but a shorter note from Anne can be taken as a sign of abruptness. And of course, Chapuis does most terrible gossip and always making things up and wants everybody to hate Anne Boleyn. So there are interesting questions about how to read the evidence here, aren't there? You can't make an assumption of just reading one letter. You have to look at them and see if they repeat their use of language because sometimes that can say, you know, that they're using a line that they're meant to use because you know someone's going to read your mail. You go through it bit by bit and you can't take everything at face value. So it is really tricky. I don't think there was a hatred from Cromwell towards Anne. I think it was more of an ambivalence. She was just sort of there and she didn't matter. He was doing his things, she was doing her things, and it was almost like he was just staying out of her way as more than anything else. A lot of people wanted to be close to Anne for obvious reasons. You know, she was the queen, she was intelligent, she was beautiful. She's the great star of everything, and Cromwell had no interest being around her. So I don't think it was a hate initially. I think things obviously took a very ugly turn. She didn't matter to him. He just let her do her thing as much as possible. So in 1534-35, he's appointed to these extraordinarily high posts of King's Secretary and then Vicegerent in Ecclesiastical Affairs. One of the sort of questions that's always lurked following G.R. Elton's work around Cromwell is his role via V. Henry. So was he Henry's good servant in acting his laws, finding ways to do things the king wanted, or was he an ardent and intelligent evangelical nudging the king into unforeseen reform? What do you think? Who was pulling the strings? I think the strings used to pull each other at certain periods. Cromwell certainly knew what he wanted with evangelical reform. And initially he thought, if we close the monasteries, we'll have power. 
and Henry went through that. He loved it. You know, who doesn't want all the land and the money and the power? But as they started planning everything, Cromwell realized that that was a terrible idea. Closing all the monasteries wasn't the way to go. And Chabouille wrote that he had seen that Cromwell wanted to close monasteries and then changed his mind. And the king just went, no, it's too late. You're not pulling out of the plan. So it sort of showed that Cromwell certainly had his own plans, had his own ideas. But ultimately, if Henry wanted something, Cromwell couldn't overrule him because they had been nudging evangelical reform under Henry's nose for years. Cromwell knew when to push and when to pull back because he'd made the mistake of angering the king in the past and his friends had made the mistake. So he knew that he had to be very, very careful and ultimately he had to do whatever Henry wanted because Henry would push back on Cromwell. And the other thing was that in Parliament, they couldn't just put through any law they wanted. Ultimately, it still had to go through Parliament. Cromwell wanted to do something and he presented the bill and they rejected it. He couldn't overrule them. They still had, you know, that form of democracy running. And even if the king wasn't happy, they could still reject things. They did on a number of occasions. Not all of Cromwell's work got put through Parliament. Yes, it was a very, very limited form of democracy, if we can call call it that at all. In applying this question then to 1536, do you think that he initiated Anne's downfall or merely engineered it for the king when evidence of her apparent adultery came to light? That is a very contentious question. I feel, I <laughs> uh, yeah, I love Thomas Cromwell, but I think that he instigated it based on what was going on. At the time, a lot of people were whispering. They knew about Jane Seymour. The rumours of adultery had come out of France Christmas 1535 and has been largely ignored. But then Cromwell saw an opportunity. Anne had pushed him too far. She had been putting her nose in, in his opinion, into the work over the Reformation. He didn't want to lose the power he had over the Reformation within England. He didn't want to share power with her. He didn't want to follow her opinions. They had argued. And when he was humiliated at a banquet, he snapped. He'd been trying to create this imperial alliance. And he felt that Anne was in the way of that. And then he got together with Chapuis and they discussed it. And then I think Cromwell come up with the plan himself. And Henry was quite happy to go along with it. I don't think Henry asked him to destroy Anne. I think Henry was quite pleased that the idea came forward. But what's the evidence for this? What I found is Chapuis and Cromwell had been getting together a lot. And that's sort of between March and April in 1536. They'd been meeting outside Austin Friars. They had the plan together. They were going to make an imperial alliance, whether or not Anne could be accepted as queen. And they were pushing French alliances at the same time. Anne wanted a French alliance. They were looking for marriages for Elizabeth and for Mary. And it was getting in the way. And Cromwell really wanted this imperial alliance, which to me never made a lot of sense because it would have been a Catholic alliance. It really mattered to him. And then they had this huge blow up at the banquet famously where Henry and Cromwell were seen arguing in public. And then the following morning they got together and Cromwell and Chapuis were shell-shocked by what had gone on. They thought that they could pull the strings with Henry. They thought that they had everything in place. But Cromwell had overreached. He couldn't create an alliance with the Holy Roman Emperor. He was just a servant, ultimately. And 
Chapuis was thought, we can't save Catherine and Mary. We can't have an alliance. We can't have anything. And Cromwell went, maybe we can. You know, maybe we can salvage everything that's gone on, even though Henry doesn't favour what we want. And that's where Cromwell, again, famously disappears in his paperwork because he's gone away to Stepney to try and figure out what he's going to do. And it was Anne that needed to go. It's like she was sort of the linchpin of all his problems in his mind. She probably had no idea that she had angered him in this way, but he disappeared and Chapuis thought, oh my God, Cromwell's in bed full of melancholy. He can't get up. This is a disaster. We're never going to create this imperial alliance that we wanted together. But actually Cromwell was coming up with a far more sinister plan. I'm always struck by the fact, though, that in that letter from Chapuis, who reports that Cromwell has said to him that he has engineered this, Cromwell says Henry told him to do it. So, you know, you could say that that's him covering his tracks or you can say it's him telling it as it is. So it's a tricky one, isn't it? It's really complicated. I've read these letters countless times. Sometimes I look at it and it says, you know, Henry wanted rid of his wife. But you can also look at it as in... I wanted rid of Henry's wife. Look how strong I am. I'm important enough. I can destroy a queen if I want. And I sometimes felt like that too. It was almost like boasting. You can come to me. Look what I did. I killed a queen. It's almost like a gloating after the fact. And I wonder, is that true? Or is it that Henry ultimately wanted rid of Anne and you just happened to be there? It really swings back and forward. Did Cromwell start it? Did Henry start it? I think they both did, ultimately. I think they fed off each other in this really disgusting, macabre way of killing a woman for their own personal agenda. Now, we've mentioned in passing the huge initiative of the Reformation in terms of the dissolution of the monasteries, but I also want us to talk about Cromwell's involvement in creating an English Bible. I mean, this had been illegal for years. Even back in 1530, it was said that it was not possible, it was not legal to create an English Bible. But he involves his old friend, Miles Coverdell, in creating one. Tell me about that. It was a big, big deal at the time. And he took it really seriously. To have an English Bible written in English with the new learning, the new interpretations, was really important to him. And he had, obviously... Thomas Gramner, they were both very close, and he got him a license to be able to create this English Bible. And Miles Coverdale, which they had both been friends with for more than a decade by this time, they felt he's the right person to bring in. They really trusted people. They had been huge friends with William Tyndale, who, of course, died in late 1536, another man who was betrayed. Cromwell really harbored it. And they could use that information from Tyndale. They could keep his learning alive because Miles Coverdale could really translate his work and they were both really close friends and they could create this new Bible. And because Cromwell had this license to be able to print an English Bible, they pushed head really, really quickly. They had uh, synods just outside of London so they could get together and create it as fast as possible. Even though the plague was really, really serious throughout 1537, they made sure that they pushed through with that because Cromer was incredibly proud of it and so was Cramner. And so when Henry agreed that the two of them could be on the cover of this Bible, when it would go out to the people, and you can't really understand how big this would have been. 
how precious it was to them. They even haggled over the price they were going to write on the cover for everybody to have a copy. It was so important to them. They felt like they were releasing all this information to the world. People finally know what God is saying in their language. You know, everyone saw the dissolution of the monasteries as this new religion or a constant changing of queens. You don't know where you stand with God anymore. And they felt like, this is it. We can create something that's going to bring everyone together. Of course, the people were not ready for an English Bible. They were scared. They were not getting the information they needed. They only saw disillusion. But they pushed so hard to get that Bible out. It was really, really important to them. Now, one of the things that Cromwell had to do after the death of Jane Seymour was to find the king a new wife. Do you think the choice of Anna of Cleves was driven through by Cromwell? And what do you think he hoped to achieve, if so? Cromwell really believed in Anna of Cleves. He thought that she was going to be a really good queen for England. She was an excellent choice. Henry didn't like her for a number of reasons. Not that she was ugly, but other things. But Cromwell, firstly, he had to find a queen almost immediately after Jane Seymour died. Within days of her death, they were already having to draw up names. Nobody wanted the job. Nobody wanted to be Queen of England. You could put out, you know, to the most beautiful princesses of Europe. They didn't want anything to do with it. And time really dragged on. Henry had a few mistresses that he sort of threw away. No one wanted to be the queen. No alliances could be reached. The Holy Roman Emperor wouldn't send anybody. And they thought, well, we can't get a French princess. We have to look abroad. And really, Cleves was the only one who offered a real option. They had a duchess who wasn't married. And she was Catholic, but her brother was a Lutheran. So you could sort of play both sides of religion off between them. And that was really, really important because Henry didn't want to go full Reformation. No matter what he did, he wasn't ready. So he was going to pick this Catholic girl because she was very young compared to Henry, but her brother was very powerful throughout Germany. And he had Saxony on board. The Elector of Saxony was Anna's brother-in-law. That meant that they had a huge Lutheran army available and Henry needed that. He needed the backup if he was going to keep changing the church for his own power, for his own interests. Because at that stage, England was a mess still. They weren't Catholic, but they weren't evangelical either. And they were at risk of being invaded. There was France, had a big alliance with the emperor, though they used to fall out a lot. Everyone was scared. And suddenly there was this option in Germany. There was a war and suddenly you'd have backup and they had huge trade alliances. It could work really, really well. And when Cleves was receptive, Cromwell said, great, send her, get her painting done, get her over here, she's perfect. Henry initially thought the same thing. He took one look at this picture and he went, yes, drop the marriage alliance today. You know, the paperwork was done in a few days. Everybody signed off on it. It was watertight. They were getting her into England. Cromwell really believed that he could make it work with Anna of Cleves. Yes, a great line is when you say that making the paper watertight was part of the problem. If Henry had wanted a marriage contract that he could get out of, he shouldn't have asked Cromwell to do it. So <laughs> we know that Henry didn't take to Anna, and why is another matter. But why do you think Cromwell fell? Was it because of the marriage? Was it because of the arguable misstep of giving up his secretaryship? 
was it heresy, as was reported in the act of detainer against him? Was it attacks by his enemies? <laughs> how do we explain this? And also, how do we explain in the run-up to his fall, his creation finally as a noble, his creation as Earl of Essex? It was all really bizarre in that Cromwell became an earl only two months before he was arrested. Enemies at that time thought that Cromwell was so powerful there was nothing they could do. They saw him made an earl. Obviously, they were shocked. They didn't like it. And I think that was like the final straw. The last year of Cromwell's life was very difficult for him. He was very sick. He'd spent an entire parliament season in bed. He'd lost a lot of power. A lot of the people that had been in the House of Lords and in the Commons were gone. He didn't have any control over the Speaker of the House. And he was almost isolated there for a period when he got sick. He was writing to the king nearly every day. There's a lot of really beautiful letters that just show their relationship. But he was sick, and it was Norfolk's opportunity to pounce. He was able to get in Henry's ear, you know, let's become more Catholic again, let's change some of these laws and roll them back. And Henry was quite happy to go along with all of that and wrote a lot of it himself. So when Cromwell finally recovered from his malaria, he was angry. No one had been there for him when he needed it after all this time of not having to worry. He had these friends. He had people who could help him, and he helped them. But when he was sick, everything fell apart, and it made him rash more than anything else. He and Norfolk had a huge public argument at Lambeth Palace. It was a real disaster. Everyone could see the weak points of both men. And it was just a case of waiting to see who was going to come out on top. And then Cromwell was trying to get Anna of Cleves into the country. And then they got the marriage and they struggled with all of that. But it was Stephen Gardner then came back into England. And that was another huge enemy for Cromwell. And they argued, you know, it was a private but massive argument. And Gardner knew he could potentially say Cromwell was a traitor because of this argument of threatening to fight the king. But Henry, as far as he knew, everything was fine. Everything was rolling along. The marriage could potentially be undone, sort of April 1540. Things weren't serious. Henry didn't fight Anna of Cleves initially. It was a few quiet months of a marriage. He had nothing to do with her, but he wasn't really actively looking to get rid of her either. And so when the position of Earl of Essex became available after the last Earl fell off his horse, he thought, I'll give it to my top man. And he had just given up being the king's secretary, two of his favourites. I think that was a way of lightening his workload, but at the same time still retaining that power because he had Ralph Sadler in there. He could rely on him utterly. So that was really important. But he had felt comfortable, but then Henry switched all at once. Suddenly he wanted an alliance with the emperor. Cromwell went, well, I've always wanted that, but you've signed this deal to promote the Germans and you've got Anna and she's still really important. And Henry said, oh, well, I've changed my mind at the last minute. And I think it was just everything come together. They could see that the king was unhappy. So his enemies went to the king and said, you know, he's a traitor. He's a heretic. You know, you want to be Catholic. You know you do. It's time to get rid of this man. And we won't go to war with the emperor with the Germans, as long as you get rid of Cromwell. He's the only thing that's holding us back. I think Henry was just so easily swayed that he just snapped. 
Thomas Risley went in there and he said, oh, I hear that you're impotent, Cromwell told me. And the king just snaps. You know, he doesn't stop to think that that's a really stupid thing to do is to arrest the only person who's working day in and day out. And the whole thing just sort of came together really, really fast, which is the same really with Anne. It all just came to a head. It was all these little tiny things that all fell into place in sort of about a week. I suppose we also have to mention Catherine Howard. I'm sure that Henry had his eye on her as well. And I think you're absolutely right. I don't think it's getting into the marriage with Anna. It's not getting him out is part of the problem amongst all these other things you've mentioned. This has been an extraordinary sort of whirlwind tour of Thomas Cromwell's life and some great insights into his character and interesting you know, readings of different parts of his life. And this all comes from your book, of course, The Private Life of Thomas Cromwell, which is out on the 30th of August. So if people have been intrigued by this conversation, as I hope they have, then they should rush to pen and sword books and order themselves a copy. Caroline, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. I really appreciate it. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you so much for listening to Not Just the Tudors. I'm excited to tell you about a very special offer over on History Hit. On History Hit, we are building the world's best history channel on demand, and we would love to share it with you. History Hit releases two exclusive new documentaries every week. I've made one called Becoming Anne. And you'll also get access to every episode of our ever-growing podcast network ad-free. That's not just with me or not just the Tudors, but also across all eras of history, including, of course, the mighty Dan Snow's history hit, Gone Medieval with Matt Lewis and Kat Jarman, The Ancients with Tristan Hughes, Betwixt the Sheets with Kate Lister, Patented with Dallas Campbell, and Warfare with James Rogers. So get over to History Hit now. You can find the link in the episode notes below this podcast. And, and this is the crucial thing, use the codes Tudors or NJTT, for not just the Tudors, to get two weeks free for your monthly subscription, followed by your first three months with 50% off. Get over to History Hit and avail yourself of this splendid offer. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited-edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age. 
a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.